All right. I can get you guys a solid gig. Matinee tomorrow, doors at one, you guys are on a three. Gentlemen. You're trapped. Things have gone south. It won't end well. You can't keep us here, man. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. Shoot who is left. Let him bleed. Get ready to run. Here we go. Careful now. This will be over soon, gentlemen. suggest to anyone who has not seen Green Room yet that you should. I'm going to assume, Siskoid, you feel the same way, that anyone should go see this movie? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm recommending it. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you haven't seen it, I wouldn't listen to this podcast because we are going to spoil it. Uh, we're going to spoil all the things that happen in it, so and you should absolutely go and see it. If you're, if you're of a certain kind of person that enjoys this kind of movie, um, you, should, you should go see it and, and don't let us spoil it for you. So uh, there's one of the movie podcasts that I listen to called um, Slash Film did an episode on Green Room, and I, I listened to the first half of the show where they didn't cover the movie, and then I just simply paused until I could see Green Room, and then I recently did, and then I went back and listened to it, and I'm glad I did because I would not have wanted it spoiled for me. So, yeah, so Green Room, uh, you know, it's a crime film. It's a sort of a horror film, more of a thriller, I would say, uh, directed by Jeremy Saulnier. Uh, this is his third film. I always thought it was his second film, but he actually did another film called Murder Party, which I'm not terribly familiar with. Uh, he did this film, Blue Ruin, a couple of years ago, which I have not seen yet. I want to oh, see it. Oh, it's amazing. I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. Um, but the basic plot of Green Room, as, as summed up on IMDb, is a punk rock band is forced to fight for survival after witnessing a murder at a neo-Nazi skinhead bar. And there have been comparisons to John Carpenter because this is sort of an assault on Precinct 13 thing. It's a you know a bunch of people trapped in sort of a room and they got to get out. Uh, it's I, I think there are some some decent comparisons to, to Carpenter there, but but as far as it goes, I mean, what what overall did you did you feel about this movie? Uh, well, I really wanted to see it. I think I wanted to see it as soon as I saw the trailer because uh, not just because there are actors that I want to see in it, uh, but because I was already a fan of Blue Ruin. Um, Jeremy Saunier, and uh, it's kind of fun to see a film by someone with an Acadian name, which I'm an Acadian, and uh, our people got deported across uh, well, across the world, but uh, very much across the uh, uh, the the 13 colonies, and so he's an American, but obviously of that stock because Saunier is a very specific name, um, but I I was a big fan of Jeremy Saunier, and I liked. No, it, Blue Ruin was the like a sort of maverick indie film where not only is it a thriller that doesn't really conform to formula, or uh, it's got a lot of things in common with Green Room, but it, it, it looked amazing. It was he started out as a cinematographer, 
at first, and then Blue Ruin is really his first accomplished film. Uh, and the way he managed it and financed it is pretty it's pretty cool as well. So that's if you're uh, if you're if you're gonna get the Blue Ruin DVD and listen to the extras or whatever, you'll you'll get that full story, which is pretty interesting in itself. So I wanted to see this film as soon as I heard about it, for sure. And I, we, as a group, because I always go to the movies with a lot of people, uh, as a group, we did, we really enjoyed it. And uh, we watched Blue Ruin again, for me, was again, but for them the first time uh, just yesterday, uh, just, you know, prepare, pre- to prepare for this. And um, they really enjoyed that one as well. So I, I recommend both films. Yeah, I mean, Green Room uh, is, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, pretty rough going in terms of the violence. I think people were pretty shocked at the level of, of gore. Uh, in this movie is Blue Ruin uh, that that I don't want to say that bad because that kind of sounds like I'm being negative, but is it that extreme? Yes, um, yes, I guess it's the same level of gore if there is to be gore, which is like uh, more or less a realistic depiction of violence. What yeah. what he really does in both films is there are a couple of similarities in, as far as the kind of thriller he makes. One is that there is no real exposition in either film. And in Blue Ruin, it's even worse because uh, it's about one guy who is fairly nonverbal, doesn't talk to a lot of people. So you understand the film by inference, by the visuals, by, you know, you're never told this is what's really happening. And in Green, um, in Green Room, you know, there is a sort of murder mystery about that murder that's all in the background, not necessarily the most important element. It's not explained. You... In, you you get to understand what happened, uh, maybe after a couple of viewings, perhaps if if you weren't taking uh, if you weren't uh, very focused on the film the first time or focused on different things. Lauren's like that as well, and it's also the kind of thriller where um, the writer director Sonia is basically playing chess against himself. That's what I felt about Green Room. What would I do in this situation? <laughs> All right, I do this. Okay, what if I wasn't the neo-Nazis shoes instead. How would I respond to this? Oh, maybe I'd do this. And then he's basically uh, playing, he's playing chess with both sides or every side because maybe not everyone has the same agenda even on the same side. And it's really what would I really do? And then when I do this thing, which might be the movie thing to do, the heroic thing to do, it doesn't work because real life doesn't work like that. Blue Ruin is very much like that, mm-hmm. where you have a hero doing the movie thing, but the movie thing <laughs> is stupid and ridiculous and will fail. So it's a big fiasco from one end to the other. Uh, and Green Room has that same, you know, they're making smart decisions and they're also making terrible blunders and mistakes uh, because they're stressed, uh, because they weren't expecting this, because they don't have any of the skills an action hero would re- normally require. Uh, but both films have that same element where the action is driven by decisions by the protagonists and the antagonists, and both those people make mistakes as you would. There are misunderstandings, uh, and the action really moves from those each of those choices. Yeah, there is a, a sort of a, a, a flatness, I'd say, for lack of a better term, that he really doesn't kind of... Um... Mickey Mouse it in terms of the, the the movie part of it. I mean, again, we're going to spoil this, but the four band members, uh, Pat, Reese, Sam, and Tiger, played by respectively Anton Yelchin, Joe Cole, 
Aaliyah Shakwat and Callum Turner, when they finally start making their way out of this this bunker that they're basically in, one of them gets out and falls out a window, and you sort of feel like, oh, he's that you know, one of them has finally get gotten out, and you figure he's going to be okay. And then he is murdered by the neo-Nazis about two seconds after he falls out the window. I mean, he's given absolutely no sense of victory or anything. I mean, he, yeah. he crawls out the window, and then the camera never moves. You just see the window open. He crawls out. And then coming into the frame are these guys, and you just hear them, you know, just cutting the living crap out stabbing. of him. Stabbing. Yeah, they're just stabbing him. And, and he he's never seen again. I mean, obviously he's dead. Uh, or maybe he's not, but I mean, you don't see him again. He doesn't get any sort of, it's, it's a very sort of realistic way of like, yeah, just cause this guy is one of the heroes doesn't mean he's going to survive in any sort of heroic manner. And almost, almost immediately inside there's, there's the dog attack Yeah. In, inside another character dies. Like two band members die almost simultaneously in yeah. this. And those are your, you know, what you think are your four protagonists. And I think the way people die on both sides is, uh, more like it doesn't follow the normal rhythm, so no. you're always surprised these people are are dead or wounded or you know maimed, uh, because it's not happening where you think it should happen in the film. If you were following a normal thriller, a normal film formula, you would spend more time with these characters. So you get you get characters dying too soon or at odd awkward moments that you don't expect, and that's what makes the film so. Surprising. Yeah, the uh, Aaliyah Shakwat, uh, Sam, the the who played, of course, maybe from Arrested Development. Uh, she gets it from the dog uh, at one point, and again, not not in a time that you think she would get it. So yeah, the rhythm is very off here, but that's good. It keeps. I mean, this film is about ninety-five minutes, and once the murder is discovered, which is the one that uh, Pat he stumbles upon, he goes back to retrieve his cell phone, and he sees that someone has been murdered. She's got a giant knife stuck in out of, stuck sticking out of her head. The, he manages to keep the tension uh, for the rest of the film, which is you know that's hard to do. Uh, and and not he doesn't have a whole lot of answers. A lot of I mean, they're trapped in there with this big that one giant guy. Uh, I think big, big Justin, big, big Justin, played by Eric Edelstein. Uh, it was very upsetting to me to see him be so so vicious because I'm familiar with him on uh, Fresh Off the Boat. He's on that ABC sitcom and he plays this sort of genteel guy. And here he is, this yeah, which real, I think is his real personality. Oh yeah, I mean he's this <laughs> real life, monster. I mean here in this movie, and you know the thing you you mentioned about that there's no sort of. Um, like setup or narration. I mean, you're kind of just dropped into this world. I mean, first of all, you're dropped into the world of this band, which is a very, very, they are living hand to mouth. They have to uh, siphon gas from a parking lot just so they can drive their van to the next gig. Uh, and the whole reason they end up doing this gig at a neo-Nazi bar is because they get screwed over by a previous gig and they don't have any money and they need to get home. And so they are willing to take like, it's 350 bucks or something from this, this guy, Tad, uh, who arranges this gig for them. And they're a little red, reticent to play for neo-Nazis, but they need the money. And, uh, it's funny. The first song they sing is what is the, it's the, uh, um, it's, um, Nazi punks, (laughs) Nazi punks fuck off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They play that song (laughs) and they, you know, and they cut a, you know, they show the, the neo-Nazis listening and the neo-Nazis know what song is being played and they're getting angrier and angrier. And at one point, uh, one of them says to the other one, I don't think this was a good idea. You know, like, like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't piss these guys off. But, um, there's another scene later on when, when after the murder is discovered and they, they, Patrick 
Stewart shows up, which is upsetting. Patrick Stewart is the head of this sort of neo-Nazi group and the owner of this club. And they're trying to find a way to uh, deal with the cops who are on their way. And so they hire these two skinheads to stab each other. And that's going to be the pretend thing that why there's blood on the floor. Because they yeah. supposedly these two got in a fight. And they why there was a 911 call. Right, there yeah. was a 911 call. And they don't even explain what that is, really. They don't, you know what I mean? They don't say, well, okay, you guys are going to have to fake this. You get the sense that this is done a lot. That these are just these two goons that they hired to do it. And it's this hor- horrible shot of these two. like They're like twins almost. Although I guess they both have skinheads so they look similar. And they're just <laughs> leaning over each other. Just jabbing each other in the stomach with a knife. And you're just like, oh my god. And you have to kind of piece it together in your mind of what do they do? What is this? And you're like, oh, okay, this is an alibi. And I like that Sonier doesn't hold your hand through this. You have to kind yeah. of reason it out. Well, he hates exposition. He said so in interviews. And what he really means to do with any of his characters and any of his stories is that you are – you're in their world. And in their world, they would not be – you know, repeating information they yep. should all know, which is a very movie thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and we talk about Patrick Stewart, and I love how um, basically Sonia. Uh, I mean, he has a term for it. Because, you know, I did I did some research, but he calls it wasting the production value, where <laughs> you've got Patrick Stewart once he shows up, and then the, his first big scene, uh, he's behind a door. You know, talking to the, the the kids are trapped in that green room, in that room, and he's on the other side of the door, and we do not cut to his side. So it's just Patrick Stewart's voice muffled through a door, right, right, and right. that's his first scene. And look, it's Patrick Stewart. He, that's enough. He has so much presence that that works, and that creates tension, and that his and his character is very much is very quiet. It's like a you know, a non-demonstrative kind of character, more quiet than you'd think a neo-Nazi, neo-Nazi cult leader would be, like soft-spoken, really. So he's underplaying it, and and yet, you know, it's still Patrick Stewart. It's still it's still kind of electrifying. So he's hiding his assets. The director is hiding his assets. The same way there's, you know, there's like uh, like when they play their number. But then other bands or bigger bands do play this event. And so you've got a big show in the back, a big rock show with a lot of extras, dancing, trashing. But if they're basically background for characters going to the bar and you know walking away from that, that area, there's no music video, which you might have expected in another, a completely other film. So it's, it's all like all these movie conventions are absent. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's and I mean our hero is Anton Yelchin, who you know ostensibly is the main character, but he seems of the four of them, uh, kind of the least able to deal with this situation. Uh, I mean, one of the other guys, I forget which one, it's Reeser Tiger. He's the one with some karate training, and he's able to get Big Justin in like a neck lock. And sort of subdue this guy who is twice the size. So he seems more capable. It's it's Pat is the, the most. I mean, we we know he's the main character because a it's Anton Yelchin and he's the biggest star in the movie and he's the one who discovers the murder. But he seems the least able to really deal with this. And in fact, he's dumb enough that when the door gets opened uh, and he sticks his arm out and he pulls his arm back, his hand is practically chopped off. And we get a giant close up of that, which I found deeply upsetting to look at. 
but I, I sort of like that idea that the the guy who you're expecting to be the main hero is is not that. Yeah, and the other like the one that has the most leadership, and the one who has the uh, martial arts skills, they're the first ones to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, that's what it is. And even Sam, uh, the Aliyah Shakwat um, character, uh, who was written as male. It used to be like a four, uh, like a boy band, uh, until you know, and something wasn't quite working with the casting, and um, I don't know, I don't know how, how they they found her exactly, but yeah, like a female presence just made it so much better, and her character is like very wry and ironic, and uh, and Sam is that kind of androgynous name. It could have been either way, kind of thing. Uh, even even she's more self possessed than than uh, Pat. Yeah. You know, Pat's kind of like the, the, the one that's most worried and scared. This is the most scared. But in the end, it's his story about uh, paintball, the story he'd heard or he'd lived in a paintball game with Marines <laughs> right. that actually gives them the key to surviving him and um, uh, the, well, I mean, the other protagonist, the sudden protagonist. Amber, played, yeah. Amber, yeah. Played by Imogen Pooch. She, she is the friend of the murdered girl and gets drawn up into this. So, yeah. And all of the, a lot of this is, I must say, uh, autobiographical, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Sonia was in a punk band when he was younger. Uh, and so, all the, the, like the first, uh, you know, the, the introduction to all the characters and sleeping on the road and stealing gas and. That all happened to him. He, he did all of that stuff. And he also kind of mentions that, and he's done like, you know, the, the, very, the, terrible, um, the terrible gig in the Mexican restaurant right. at first, like the, the very small gig that, that doesn't make sense. He did that. That right. happened to him. Uh, and he also sort of like, let's slide that the whole discovering a murder or discovering a crime in a room after a, a set that happened as well, but he doesn't go into it. Wow. Interesting. Um, so, and the, the movie is in a way, a way to uh, sort of exor- exercise those, those nightmares that he might still have of, you know, of his time in punk rock. Yikes. Uh, I mean, one of the, that's terrifying. Um, one of the things that occurred to me when I, when I watched in the beginning and you see what a hard scrabble existence, this, this poor band, I mean, they're sleeping in the van and they're stealing gas to survive. And um, at one point they, they run out of gas because the one guy falls asleep while they park and he left the car running. So they use up all the gas in there. They're parked like a field somewhere is, is, uh, you know, I don't mean to be, um, sort of patriarchal or anything, but I couldn't help it when I, when, when they decide to take the gig at the neo-Nazi club, I couldn't help but think about the parents of Sam, whoever they are. We never get to meet them. There's no reference to them, but the idea that this young woman, I don't mean to, I feel like the, the, the that Woody Allen phrase is, is in my head of the, uh, I like to put women under a pedestal, but like I, it's, it, it's horrifying to me to know that she has a set of parents who have no idea that their daughter is engaging in such dangerous behavior because I mean, going to a neo-Nazi club and being the practically as far as she knows, the only woman in the room that is taking an enormous risk. And she seems kind of, you know, doesn't really, doesn't realize it. I mean, they don't get into that angle. There is no implied 
rape threat or anything in this film. Uh, but but just the idea of going to a neo-Nazi club where it is really off the grid and being the only woman there, you just I sort of wanted to shake her a little and go, "What are you doing? Get get the hell out of you know this is crazy." <laughs> but it's okay for the boys. I, I well, that's what I'm saying. I realize how ridiculous it is because I wouldn't go to it. I mean, it's it's insane. I mean. Something about the the neo Nazi thing, and and it's terrifying because I think the um the same actor is in Blue Ruin, right? It's Macon Blair. He was the star of Blue Ruin, and he's in this film as one of the neo Nazis. Yeah, he was the no name who was the star of a film that did pretty well. Right. Uh, yeah, um, and he wasn't supposed to be in this film. He um he's, he's Sonia's best friend, and that's why they they worked on that first film together. But he doesn't really. You know, he doesn't look like your typical uh, skinhead or yeah. is not young enough to be in the punk band and probably didn't play an instrument. And most of these, the kids that play the, the band members had musical experience. They're playing their actual instruments. Um, so, but he shaved his head and he went to, to the audition and met the casting director and, you know, got the part independent of Sonia's wishes. <laughs> so well, no, you aced it. You you got it. You're you know you. Well, let's work together again. <laughs> so that's how he got in the movie, uh, making Blair. Once uh, you know, and he is all, but he is, but that character is sort of an ambivalent character. Is he? Uh, he's he's still fresh enough that uh, he hasn't earned his red laces, which is their their sort of badge of yeah of honor or uh, yeah. But he earns them during the film, and yet he's still willing to sort of betray uh, Patrick Stewart's cult leader, really, when he, when he sees the level of violence and the level of um, maybe his eyes op- are open to the corruption within this particular circle uh, where, okay, people are asked to, you know, kind of cover for that murder, but that murder did happen. And then you come to find out that it's not the only murder because, you know, there's that, uh, and it's never really explained. But the uh, the the baseball bat that the uh, the the two lovers who are escaping the um, the cult. I'm calling it a cult. I'm sorry, but let's, let's I, I'm call, yeah, I'm calling it a cult um, for purposes of this. But the people are escaping the cult have a fishy baseball bat and a yeah. plastic bag. So then Patrick Stewart thinks, well, they're possibly using this as collateral against the cult or to escape the cult or perhaps you know the the bat was used to kill someone they care about and they're going to sell them out to the police who knows we don't know we we can't know because these people get killed before they can ever speak the the story if you will but uh it's uh i think the Macon Blair Macon Blair's character uh, Gabe is perhaps a disillusion that by the end of the film and sort of you know, leaves himself and lets uh, the survivors go to the the, the orchard where uh, they'll have their final confrontation with Patrick Stewart and, and such. I didn't even get the sense for a while that the Patrick Stewart character was even necessarily... I mean, look, if you are profiting off neo-Nazis, I'm perfectly content to say you are one as oh, well. Oh, is not one? Is but, that, but, but, you but, but you don't necessarily know that he's a full-on believer as he is just someone who is just willing to make a buck off these idiots. But then he has a line later on that he, where he uses a racial epithet and you go, Oh, okay. Yeah. He, he, he is one of these people. He's calmer 
than the rest of them, and he's and he's more he's got more of a head on his shoulders, and I think that's probably why you cast Patrick Stewart because you it's funny by casting Patrick Stewart, uh, and this movie of course has a double Star Trek connection that you've got a Chekhov and Captain Picard uh, in this film. I saw an yep. interview with with um, the late the late unbelievable Anton Yelchin where he was asked, "Did you talk to Patrick Stewart about your Star Trek cross?" And he said, "No, I was we were busy concentrating on the film. We didn't really have time to talk about that stuff." But um, it's funny. I mean, you cast someone who was so beloved as a hero in this completely despicable part. And I almost think it's you're casting against type, but also completely for type because you have to buy that Patrick Stewart's character is a effective leader and a calm leader. And he is sort of being Picard a bit if it is in the service of something horrible. Yeah, and you're right. He might not, and I had the same thought the first time I watched it, um, where he he may not be. Um, uh, he doesn't have to be a neo-Nazi. He only needs to exploit this group of people. Right. And even when he uses the racial slur, um, he's still talking to neo-Nazis. He's still he's speaking in their language, right. if you will. But it's. It, we don't get the whole the, the entire scope of the operation you know it's there's drugs involved there's i mean it's it's a little organized crime empire perhaps and he might be at the top of this and using those people's convictions to manipulate them and to to get his empire working and perhaps get people to do certainly get people to do things they wouldn't even they wouldn't do even on salary you know yeah, which uh, brings up something that I did want to – that this occurred to me as I was watching the film. I wanted to see this when it came out because I had heard a lot of good things about it. Again, I hadn't seen Blue Ruin, but I heard that Saulnier was really very talented, and I know the backstory of it. You, you mentioned earlier about the, the sacrifices he made to make Blue Ruin. He basically mortgaged his house and did all these sorts of things and, and you know really put it all out on the line, and it worked for him. And everyone had said Green Room was terrific, and I wanted to see it in the theater. But I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to. I just it didn't play very long, and it disappeared before I had a chance to see it. So then I uh, I had waited until it came to uh, you know on demand, and that's when I saw it. Now I realized after having finished the movie, I had I think a very different reaction to it when I saw it, which was uh, in mid August, versus when what my reaction would have been had I seen it when it first came out, which was around here in early May. Uh, and that reaction is um, this film, I don't think this film is necessarily very deep and I don't think it's trying to be. I think Sonier is trying to just give us a very effective thriller. It's saying a few things here and there, but I, I think for the most part, he's really just trying to give you a, a, a not a thrill ride because it's not a Transformers movie, but it's, I don't think there's a whole lot going on here in terms of its themes. He's really just trying to give you this real tense story, and he's doing it very effectively. And the fact that the film's final scene, uh, there's this repeated uh, ongoing gag about uh, all the bands, Desert Island Band. You know, what would happen if you could only listen to one band, I guess, for the rest of your life? Who would you pick? Right. And, and I, a, I imagine we'll have to answer this question before the podcast is over. I didn't even think about that, but but yes, oh, we'll like, we will to. do that. We will do that. Yep. I think everybody knows my answer. Um, but uh, <laughs> but that's a record. That's a recurring thing. And the, the the final bit line of the movie is when you know uh, Sam uh, is it Sam uh, Antonio no, Pat. Pat Pat finally yep. has an answer, and he says that to Imogen Imogen Poots's character. And after all they'd been through, her response is, "Who gives a shit." 
and it's <laughs> it's a great gag to go out on the movie on because you're like, why? I would. I don't care about your thoughts, buddy. I almost died, but I feel that that it's a way for Sonia to release the tension a little, to end the film on kind of a joke. And what I'm getting at here in a very roundabout way is, uh, if I had seen this movie in May, uh, this was before um, Donald Trump had locked up the Republican nomination. And I still didn't think that he was going to. And by the time I saw this movie for real in August, he is now the nominee. And uh, watching this film about neo-Nazis, it is very troubling to me because he is mainstreaming in American society white supremacy. Uh, I mean, the guy who was running his campaign writes for Breitbart.com, which is basically a white nationalist movement with better PR. And this film became much more serious to me than I think it would have been had I seen it in May. I think in May I would have just said, oh, this was a great thrill ride. Obviously, there are neo-Nazis in this country. I know that. But they are a well-deserved you know, cult that really is never going to get any grip in this country because everyone knows they are despicable. But I didn't quite able to laugh that off seeing it when I saw it because I'm like, well, they're a lot closer to having some real pull in this country than they were three months ago. And so this film, which I don't necessarily think, again, is meant to be terribly deep, it struck me and made me fearful in a way that I don't think even Sonnier could have intended because of what's going on in the real world. Yeah, yeah, and there's something to be said about the the characters he creates in this. Uh, the because even those neo Nazis, you know, the Nazis are the per- forget the neo, but the the Nazis are your perfect movie villain. Of course, it you put a, a Nazi or a Nazi stand in uh, in a film, totally evil, immediately evil. They're you know, I do the same with role playing games. <laughs> if I put Nazis, it's like. A, it, Cannon fodder already. Everybody knows they're evil. They're, it's shorthand. Just like you want a monster, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs yeah. and monsters, you're done. You're done. Nazis and dinosaurs, perfect. Perfect storm. Okay. So in this case, the neo-Nazis are Nazis, so we know already, okay, these are bad people. They're going to play at this club. There's not a good apple in the bunch. That's pretty much right. our opinion. Our, our opinion going in. Uh, or hopefully, I mean. But uh, and the band knows this, and the band even rebels against it with their with by playing a cover of a song that's that attacks their principles. Um, but then and yeah, okay, sure. I don't think any of them are sympathetic, and yet there is a variation among them. Yes. They're not all the same, and some of the, you know, like the guy who has the the dogs, for example. Yeah, creep. <laughs> Total creep, but he loves those dogs. Those dogs love him. Yes, they do. There, there's a there's a sweet moment with a dying dog, which is kind of a mirror of. It kind of feels like a metaphor for these people who are all following Patrick Stewart. Uh, they're all loyal dogs, doing things that are that have been asked of them, but they're not necessarily. You know, there's not necessarily thought behind it. I think that's why I call it a cult. The cult leader or leaders think about these things, make the choices, but the others are controlled drones, if you will, and though their their hate and their anger and they don't know where to put you know, they don't know they don't know where to put their their emotions or their uh, so they they latch on to this cult leader and then they do whatever the cult leader asks them to 
it's about being part of a community, just like we're part of a let's like a geek community. Right. right. We, we do find kinship in sure. podcasts like this, blogs like ours. You know, this I think that's a very positive way to, to find a um, uh, a community. Just but for some people, this is going to be it. This is you know for some people who feel disenfranchised in some way, they you know, pick up on whatever vibe. And I mean, it's Patrick Stewart. So it, there is charisma going on here that we can accept, uh, that this charis- that this is a charismatic leader that, you know, whatever he says they do and they're part of that system and it's become their culture. And when we talk about a culture, we talk about a new normal, if you will, because like another, when you go visit another culture, you might find that it's very strange that they have strange social mores, that you know, the weird weddings, a weird relationship with death, strange foods, whatever. To them, completely normal. That's why it's a culture. Uh, and in this case, we find it aberrant or aberrant. Is that, that, that the better I way think, to say it? I think it's aberrant, but yeah, I know. Yeah, what you meant. yeah. We find it aberrant that they. Uh, that they that they're you know racist and criminal and violent and whatever else you want to pin on the on this particular group, but it is their culture and to them normal and everyone else is an outsider. So it's normal to think in those terms for them. And within that group, you might still have people who are who think differently, who aren't quite so extreme, but who are part of that society. Just like Amber, for example, who is obviously in that circle. Um, you know, isn't, I don't think she has those same feelings. No, they never really get go out and say that, but you get the idea that she's, she's only there because it's her friend is dating one of the neo-Nazis and that's right. So you've got like a larger circle that they're not all red, you know, they don't all have red laces. Those are the extremists, you know, but a lot of the people going to the party are skinhead punks, part of gangs, uh, but wouldn't be trusted with, you know, organized murders. <laughs> right. Uh, but so it's, it's, it's very strange. I mean, it's off-putting to think about when, when you, you insert yourself into a group that you've been conditioned to hate. Because, it's, it, I mean, I, I know I, I'm turning us into racists <laughs> when I say this. It's like that sort of mentality where we know exactly we've profiled these people, skinheads, neo-Nazis, obviously bad people. And... That whole culture, I, I think it, it is a whole culture of evil based on, uh, you know, terrible things. And yet those people have moms and sisters and sure. families and pets. And That guy uh, loves his dogs. He's a, neo, he's a Nazi, but he loves his dog. And so I, I don't think we're necessarily empathizing with them, but we understand them more as people yes. than if they were just straight up villains. You know, it's, it's, so it's weird. It's like, I think it's part of the tension of the film where it's, you're, you're watching this and you're, you're not pulling for them, but you might understand them more than another film. And you go to, well, you know, that, that, that dog really is sweet, but we saw that dog murder two people. Yeah. And in the same way, I think the skinheads in the film murder people do bad things, but they also have a master and perhaps they're just clueless and doing what they're told and hoping to get some validation out of it. Now, if you bring it back to your uh, political argument that, you know, that Trump has somehow unleashed a mainstreamed uh, certain 
the same kind of negative elements uh, in American society and up to a point in, you know, it, I mean, it filters through to other countries. I mean, in Canada, you will have Trump supporters and people who think that's, you know, that's, that's cool somehow. Um, you won't find many of them on my side of the fence necessarily, but right. I know they exist. You know, he's tapping into something that's actually real, that people who actually think like this, but are they like the, the way that they are unleashed, where before they might have kept that opinion to themselves, um, is perhaps the same kind of, you know, Trump is Patrick Stewart in this. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a, char a charismatic that people latch on to and they see it like a movement and a, a way to, to forge a community and to be part of something. And finally, people who think like I do, even though your, your thinking is wrong, think. You know, that's what's happening. And what you need for that to happen is someone to make it viable, someone to make it acceptable. And if, if this is all coming out, I mean, Trump isn't creating racists. No. But he's telling racists that it's acceptable yes. to, to, to speak, think, and, and in this case, act as well on, on those on that wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about Sonnier doing the Nazis, you know, sort of presenting the Nazis as real people. And that's what makes them more terrifying. It, it would be easier to dismiss them if they are the cartoony Nazis of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Because, you know, then they are just, you know, basically red shirts that you can just be like, oh, we'll just pick them off. That's fine. But no, they're real people. Um, and that is what, and, and, he gets the details. I, I, I'm going to assume he gets the details right. I don't know, thank God, uh, the details of a Nazi club, but it feels real. Um, these people don't go around, you know, with, you know, uh, they're not Charles Manson with swastikas carved into their foreheads. They look like regular people. I mean, some people have seen pictures of me on Facebook. I have a shaved head, you know. I mean, so it's like, yeah. you know, it's not ev not because everybody is, has a shaved head means they're a skinhead, but nevertheless. So these guys look like kind of regular guys. And so by treating it seriously, by taking it seriously, even in the context of what, again, I think is just meant to be a thrill ride, a, a, a sophisticated thrill ride, a, a Hitchcockian thrill ride i don't think you know i think some of hitchcock's films are, are not meant to be anything other than a thrill ride but that doesn't mean they're not sophisticated and they're not well done they're not art um but it, it, it he grounds it in a reality that that i think almost i hate to use this sense but almost like does the nazis serves them well because it makes them real people because they are real people as you talk about they're not cartoons and i think and, if, and, and know, as we found out the they actually do exist, and yeah. we're seeing them, you know, speak out much more than in the past uh, during this election period. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't mean to get too far off topic, but I follow a lot of reporters on Twitter, and I, you know, when I see one of them write something about Trump, there don't there doesn't seem to be uh, many people who feel ashamed about tweeting back at them, you know, horrible racial epithets just just for being a reporter and having to be Jewish, you know, and I'm like, wow, I don't think those people used to be that free to say things like that. On t I know Twitter can be a real sewer <laughs> at times, but, uh, you know, that's sort of troubling. And so except when I watched this film, I, I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And it, and it might not have occurred to me had I seen it in May, but by seeing it in August, I just went, wow, these are, 
okay, I know this crowd, you know, I feel like I'm seeing this crowd and this is really scary. We're, we're the idea that, that, you know, in a, in a, in a weird universe, Patrick Stewart may be considered a guy that would be perfectly fine to, you know, foster a, you know, host a Trump rally or something. Cause he seems like a reasonable guy. You know, I mean, he, you could tell that, that the Patrick Stewart character is able to turn it on and off. And is when he's with regular people, is probably to be, you know perfectly capable of being charming, and seems like a very smart, thoughtful guy. And you just don't know that just beneath that faceplate, he's a monster. Yeah, definitely. It's it's, uh, uh, it, it's a great performance and a very understated one. And like um, like everyone else, when he has to go, it's uh, it's sudden and unexpected. <laughs> Yeah, I do like uh, that the deaths are not movie deaths. Uh, they're not done in sort of this dramatic style when when people get shot, they keep surviving. They don't. There is no Jason Voorhees thing where people are jumping at. You know, they're killed and then they yeah. jump again. No, people when the they last get, scare. Yeah, there's no the last right. scare. Yeah. yeah, when they people these people get shot, they just go and they die. Or when the guy gets attacked by the dog, he lays there and gurgles as he slowly dies. Uh, I mean, yeah. there's a, there's a little tossed off line about where two of the band members are have been not killed but mortally wounded and the idea is they're gonna one of the lower not lower level nazis says well we should just kill them and patrick Stewart says you know no uh we're gonna drag them off to this field and then when they die it'll be it'll when the when the coroner eventually discover you know finds them uh it'll be they'll be able to cover up the time of death more easily if they do it a certain way. And so you're like, wow. So a couple of members of this band are just laying there off camera, slowly dying. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's horrific. You know, I mean, good Lord. It's just chilling. It's just really chilling. And, you know, I do not like movies with dogs uh, in bad situations. <laughs> uh, the Thing is the only movie I can tolerate where dogs get it. Otherwise, I find it just so unpalatable that I don't want to watch it. And dogs really get it in this movie. Um, and I was able to get through it <laughs> because I thought the film was so good. I thought I was so invested in what Saulnier was showing me that I was able to get past the fact that these poor dogs, you know, they have to deal with the, the feedback, um, you know, blistering their ears. And the one dog gets a mic stand hit. I don't know I mean, how he did that effect. It's, they, well, I do. <laughs> okay. How did, how did they do that? Well, they actually spent money on a dog puppet. Which they use for exactly <laughs> one shot, and okay, uh, all right, and it, and you hardly see it, and the actual stuff, and they just didn't need to use it because the dogs are so well trained. Uh, so when um, uh, when it's uh, Aaliyah, it's Sam being bitten on the leg, I think at that point, or either her or Amber, whichever is using the the mic stand. I think it's Amber that get because yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a stunt person playing Amber. The mic stand is just a styrofoam thing bike stand and the dog is real it's just come like uh gently tapping the dog, the real dog with that styrofoam mic stand it's just playfully playfully <laughs> going at it with the dog just like playing and but because of the the context and the way it's edited and the way it's shot it's you know you're you're thinking there's a real fight with a real dog in there uh, you know, but it's not. It's it's all it's all fake. It's all trained dogs, and the like. Sonia said the the dogs were so so well trained and so you know did everything on cue 
I mean, he wasn't working with cats, <laughs> which is all, all the horror stories are always cats, right? The, uh, working with cats is terrible. It's, uh, and, you know, I can, I, I've had cats my whole life. It's, yes, obviously, that would be, that's like the worst idea ever. Just shoot the cat and do whatever, just right into the script what the cat did. It's, you've got to start with the cat doing stuff. But, but with the dog, uh, yeah, they, they, they were just so compliant and did everything they were asked to and the the way it was shot was always very like the fakery was never uh, easy to spot so no not at all it's it, seamless yeah so they hardly used that that puppet you know with like the punched in one hair at, at a time you know i'm sure that puppet cost a lot of money uh, and yet but when you're prepping the film you you don't know you think you might be saving yourself a lot of hassle but it just wasn't needed so yeah that's how they did it wow that's, yeah. that's impressive because that scene really upset me when I saw – I mean look, I knew of course the dog was not literally being hit in the head with a mic stand. I'm like I know this is not happening. No animals be, were harmed. But I'll be damned if I could figure out how they did it. So that's good. That's that's very good editing. That's Solnier, man. He's a he's good. This guy Well, you really, should see – I mean I, I can't wait till you see Blue Ruin because – I absolutely plan on watching it. Yeah, because he shoots that one. Uh, he's, he's also the cameraman for it and uh, so he's credited for cinematography. And you know the like the beginning of Green Room where it's very, I'm gonna say lyrical, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of short shots of the band on the road, right, right, and the at, there's atmosphere and the movie is very very green. <laughs> it's called Green Room, but it's it's like almost green filtered and it's always green in the frame. And Blue Ruins like that. There's always blue in the frame, but it doesn't feel trite. Uh, but there is like a color palette, and I hope his third film or his next film. Is also, you know, color, <laughs> Red, color, orange, co- yeah, purple. Yeah, let's something. let's see, uh, let's make it a trilogy of colors. But um, but the way he, like the way he, it's the the start of the film is shot, which is, you know, like filtered light and looking at odd things and the, the cameras in a different in a strange space. Uh, Blue Ruin is all the way like that. Like Blue Ruin is an amazing. It just looks so lush and amazing. Mm. Um, so it looks better than, than Green Room in a way, but it's more artistic. You know, let's let's call it that. Okay. Like strange shots, interesting shots. Uh, and in Green Room, it's less so, but they do. But you know, it's got a different purpose. You've got that camera in a small space when they're trapped in the Green Room, which is like forever. The camera is in there with them, and you know, tied in. And all of a sudden, you know, like the beginning of the film, you're seeing Oregon, uh, or is it? Yeah, you're seeing Oregon. And, uh, you know, white shots, you know, you, you're looking from afar, you're driving with the van from on, up top on, uh, with a helicopter, there's space. Once you're inside the green room, it's tight close-ups, camera close to people's faces, it's, you know, you're supposed to feel the claustrophobia of it. So it's like a different kind of um, cinematography. So all of that is, is thought out and makes you feel something. And it's not until you get to leave the compound that, you know, the camera gets to step back from the characters again. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely Yeah, everything uh, in terms of the color palette, everything, there is that kind of like sickly type patina over everything, which, you know, gives it, you, the place like, smells horrible. It's filled with smoke. It's filled with spilled fluids of different kinds. It's, yeah, it's not a, uh, it's, it's, it's a great movie location. I mean, the green room is a, it's a really well conceived and well sort of thought out. And yeah, in terms of the close ups, I mean, we talk about that, uh, that, uh, 
Anton Yelchin's hand almost gets hacked off, and we see a big close-up of it. There's another close-up where the big guy gets his stomach cut open, and oof, mm. oh boy, you know, I, I I recommend this movie for anyone who enjoys really good thrillers because this is a very very good thriller. But if you are not uh, sanguine about seeing gory violence, uh, this might not be for you because it's the way it's shot. It's so plain and matter of fact that it makes it more horrible as opposed to seeing gore in a horror movie where it's completely over the top and, you know, somebody, let's, you know, this isn't scanners of somebody's head exploding. This is a much more realistic horror. I mean, watching someone's belly get separated in two is, you know, I've seen a lot of horror movies, but watching that, I was like, you know, because the guy is, like, conscious while it's happening. It's just... Still makes you squirm. Yeah. yeah. God, it's a terrific movie. Uh, well, for Blue Ruin, uh, I absolutely want to see it, and uh, you'll have to come back on the show, and we'll talk about Blue Ruin. Sure, sure. That's, that's no problem at all. All right. Uh, I think there's even more to talk about because it is so elliptical. Uh, there's so you know there's fewer characters are speaking, so there's more to try to figure out by yourself, and uh, there's there's a little, little bit more style to it. But it's essentially the same kind of idea where real people in extreme movie situations, and you know all the movie tricks will not work, or will you know you're, you you can't expect real life to conform to movie formula, and that's pretty much how Green Room and Blue Ruin function uh the you know that's how they defy your expectations because it's you know thrillers have a formulaic plot usually and sure you recognize it's a thriller you know okay like blue ruin is like a revenge thriller this is an under siege kind of thriller um you're used to these stories you know how they should go you know there's going to be an attrition of characters people are going to be dying throughout the film uh, like in this case you know this and knowing it does not prevent you from being surprised because uh because there's the randomness of real life in it i think that's that's the real win here i agree i agree entirely i said we both recommend this film highly i think it's terrific sonier it just seems like he's a major talent and it'll be interesting to see what he does next he doesn't have any films listed on his imdb page but that could just mean he's just writing something i mean he think he writes his own, his own movie so he's writing uh, working yeah. on something and uh, i will you know, after this, after this, I will like make a double effort to go see his next film in a theater because I would have loved to have seen Green Room in a theater. Uh, I think that would have been an interesting experience. It probably would have made it for a little more, even more involving than it was than watching it on my couch uh, at home. Yeah. But uh, you know, geez, he got me pretty well from my couch, so I can only imagine in a darkened theater. Uh, and I think it's it's so. what makes uh, Anton Yelchin's death all the more sad. I mean, I, I you know, obviously, I saw this before. Uh, before he was killed, but the idea that when I went to see Star Trek Beyond, um, uh, we, we were choked up, and part of it was, you know, that idea that this actor had died. But in uh, watching Green Room, you know, again, uh, it's and even then, even after Star Trek Beyond, when we saw Anton Yelchin in Green Room uh, in May. It was, oh, it's really cool. This is like the, the young actor that we really enjoyed and thought he was funny and charming in the Star Trek franchise. Great. He's gotten, you know, like a lead role in this very interesting movie. And, I, you know, I, I look forward to seeing him again in many films. He's making great choices. Yeah. You know, sometimes some actors, you like them, but uh, you'll be doing films you don't care about. But uh, an actor actively chooses films you think are quirky and interesting and that's an actor I want to follow because 
his choices would be my choices. Hmm. And so that when he died, it was all the sadder because we had already, uh, as a as a group over here in Moncton, we'd already put him on that on that track, thinking, "Oh, this is an actor that we enjoyed, and now he's doing these kinds of projects." I can't wait to see what's next. I can't see. To, I can't wait to see his career over time. Uh, and of course, there there will be none. Yeah, he used his his Star Trek sort of fame and money to go do interesting things, which is. Uh... You know, that's the yeah. the heart of someone who had taste and stuff. And he's he's terrific in this movie. I mean, for someone who is playing a part where he is so put upon, uh, I mean, he really kind of has just to react. He's constantly just reacting to this crazy situation. He's terrific, and he holds the center. I mean, Imogen Poots is very good, too. Uh, and him and her have a nice uh, sort of chemistry, as much as you can have with someone in this sort of situation. Yeah. Um, and in the final whole sequence where he paints his face and he does the war, does the war paint thing, you buy it. You know, it seems like a plausible turn. So, yeah, he's he's very good in this movie. Yeah. So, in the end, what's your Desert Island band? <laughs> I could not live without a Bob Dylan. I That would not be a – that would be a very sad thing to know. I would never hear – I mean, there are some other bands and some other people that I would be upset to never – but if I had to pick one, it would be Bob Dylan. Just yeah. Never. So, you're not doing the same thing the band did in the film where they – when asked by, uh, uh, by a, you know, a radio host what it would be – they all said like you know hardcore punk stuff, uh, but when they were in the, that's one of the things I found. Yeah, the their their answers charming. are very different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once they're about to die, it's like really it's Madonna. Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> Madonna. Yeah. Um, so and we never find do find out what uh, Pat's. No, uh, we never do. <laughs> we yeah. never do. Her reaction, Imogen Poots' reaction, is is makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, who, cares? who cares? Uh, especially since it's a it's a it's a game he had with his own band, and she's not part of the band. She, right. you know, so it's it's even more irrelevant to her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so but yeah, your, it sort of revealed name? who the characters actually actually were. There's like you're fronting as a band, and then there's who you really are, and right. and. In some way, the that's what the movie is about. To them, it's like uh, suddenly they're thrown into an, an impossible situation, and what kind of people are they really? Mm-hmm. You know, who, which are the real survivors? So it's, it's a bit like that. Um, for me, my Desert Island band, uh, I'm, I'm going to name someone. I'm going to name something. Uh, it is has to be the Rio Statics. Dead air. Uh, <laughs> I'm completely unfamiliar with them. Yeah, and you should be. Uh, they're uh, <laughs> they are the most um, the most Canadian band possible. Uh, <laughs> okay. They're a Canadian band that I discovered in the when I when I went to college in the uh, very early '90s. Uh, so they basically started around like late '80s. I've I've seen them in uh, in shows many times. Uh, they uh, they do some reunion concerts from time to time now but they're you know much older and um on you know only sometimes but when i listen to their music the real statics when i listen to their music it's like an indie rock kind of thing but they are very much inspired by older canadian music i can i can somehow hear the the ocean and the wind and the and winter in the way they use their instruments and they have very uh canadian themes I mean, Canada is referenced in many songs or parts of Canada, uh, and um, three of them are singers and three of them are songwriters, and just, just like the drummer is not really part of that uh, <laughs> that same creative uh, influence. So you have very different and quirky kinds of 
ways to approach songs uh, all in that same band which was like maybe 10 albums or so uh anyway if if you want to check that out i you know i recommend uh, anyone should start with the with melville the album the, like their second real album but they're their first wide um wide release album melville and then go to will music after that um I, I think it's, I mean, I could not live without that because it's kind of part of my identity and it's how I celebrate my own Canadianness. It is. So that's my, my own desert island is, <laughs> is like the second biggest country in the world. That's my biggest, that's my <laughs> island. <laughs> that's the music I have to listen to. Hopefully the music, hopefully the, the island has uh, um, some snow <laughs> because <laughs> It's harder to listen to in the summer. I think it's like okay. very wintry music. To oh, me. I see. Okay, all right. We'll <laughs> we'll uh, we'll put the uh, link to their band site. It's RioStatics.ca. We'll put the the link to their website. In I the don't think that's notes. it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? You Is don't it? think that's it? Yeah. No, that's it. You checked it? Okay. Yes, I'm looking at it right now because okay. I'm like, who are these Rio Statics? So, okay, it's R H E O Statics. So there, we'll, we'll yeah. put that link in the show notes. So yeah, everybody go see. Well, again, like I said, don't everybody see Green Room because you know if you like it. But uh, if you if you like it, I think you really like. It. If you're the kind of person that likes this movie, I think you really like it because it's exceedingly well done. Great performances. At, at, at this point, I hope you've already seen it because yes, yes, we spoil the whole film. Yeah, yeah, really, absolutely. Yeah, you don't be listening to this if you haven't seen it. Right? It's very too late for that. We're, I did warn you in the beginning of the show. So uh, anyway, Cisco, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. This was a movie I really wanted to get to, and I don't know that many people have seen it and it was really enjoyable discussing this with you i'm always up to talk about um the indie indie movies and i I watch a lot of them all right well said we're gonna get to blue ruined until then where can people find you on the internet they can find me at uh just google the word ciscoid which uh, should get you to ciscoid's blog of geekery two articles a day on there about uh, different geekly topics i'm a member of the legion of super bloggers as well and of course i'm a proud member of the uh, Fire and Water network of podcasts uh, with shows including Oh Hot More Not, First Strike Invasion, and uh, the, um, what is it? <laughs> give, me the, give me that Star Trek. The brand oh, yeah. Give me that Star Trek. Yeah, we just started Give Me That Star Trek. Uh, so that's a, that's a new show on there. And, of course, the uh, Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, which is coming back from a hiatus in October. Oh, that's good news. Excellent. All right. Uh, yeah, of course, you can find this show, as always, on the podcast, on the website, which is firewaterpodcast.com, and on Twitter, at Film and Water Pod. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next week, that's a wrap. So we pulled himself to his feet, pulled his body back up the bank, and looked back down there. can drown in a bathtub, so they say. Someone in class called me a loser. I decided to skip the day. Hey.